Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me read this text for us, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who water are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Pray with me, please. Father, we are opening up your word. These are spiritual words we will encounter. Last week we were told, O Lord, that we have the mind of Christ. We were also reminded that spiritual truth needs to be discerned spiritually. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us. That you would open the eyes of our heart. That our faith would be increased as we take from you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2008, actors Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett starred in a movie called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. The movie was a box office success, grossing a total of about $333 million worldwide. It also did pretty well among the critics. It it went on to receive 13 Oscar nominations and, and actually won three of those. You might have heard about the movie. It was filmed in New Orleans couple of years after Hurricane Katrina. What you may not have heard about the movie is what it's actually based on. So typical Hollywood, they'll, they'll say this is loosely based on this and has nothing to do with what they claim it's based on. But the, the movie is based on a short novel written in 1922 by the famous American novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald. Let me give you kind of a quick um, short summary of Fitzgerald's work. This is what the original story was about. In 1860, Baltimore, a man by the name of Benjamin was born with the physical appearance of a 70-year-old man. So, Peter, I suppose he looked like you. (laughs) I didn't mean that to... He's 75... (laughs) So this man, this baby is born, looks like a 70-year-old man, and he's already capable of speech. At the age of five, Benjamin is sent to kindergarten, but is quickly withdrawn after he repeatedly falls asleep during child activities. (laughs) We're still talking about Benjamin. (laughs) 
At the age of 18, Benjamin enrolls in Yale, but is sent home by officials because they think he's a 50-year-old, a crazy 50-year-old man. When Benjamin turns 20, his family realize that Benjamin is aging backwards. Now, why it took them that long to figure that out, I don't know, but that's what the story's about. He meets a young Hildegard Moncrief and falls in love with her. Hildegard mistakes Benjamin for a much older man, but marries him six months later and remains ignorant of his condition. Bored at home, Benjamin enlists in the Spanish-American War in 1898 and achieves great triumph in the military, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He retires from the army to focus on his company and he receives multiple medals. At the age of 50, Benjamin now looks like a 20-year-old and turns over the control of his company to his son, Roscoe. Benjamin then enrolls in Harvard. So Yale wasn't enough, apparently. He goes off to Harvard. His first year there is a great success. He dominates in football and takes revenge against Dale for having rejected him to play on the football team earlier because he had the body of a 50-year-old. However, during his junior and senior year, he is only 16 years old. So he's too weak to play college football and barely able to cope with the academic work. As the years progress, Benjamin grows from a moody teenager into a child. Eventually, Roscoe, Benjamin's son, has a child of his own, who later attends kindergarten with Benjamin. After kindergarten, Benjamin slowly begins to lose memory of his earlier life. His memory fades away to the point where he cannot remember anything except his nurse. Everything fades to darkness shortly after that. So by all accounts, this is a weird story. It's a bizarre story, but it's interesting. And the reason I share that story with you this morning is some of what I just described in telling you of the story actually helps describe the passage we're looking at this morning. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button features the story of a man experiencing aging in reverse. He's maturing into immaturity. He is shrinking as he grows. And while Fitzgerald uses the term curious to describe what's happening to Mr. Benjamin, what's happening to Benjamin is not curious. It's dangerous. Over the past several weeks, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, and and this morning I wanted to pick up right where we left off from last week. We've been spending a good deal of time in these first chapters. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One, this is the method of our teaching here at Lakeview. Um, We open the Bible and preach what's in the Bible, and then preach what's after what we preached last week that was in the Bible. So as we continue working along a particular book, we we encounter something, and that's what we're going to preach on. But curiously, Paul continues to, in a sense, talk about the same thing. For the first four chapters of the book of Corinthians, there's this same emphasis that Paul gives and gives and shares and shares. He's not changing the subject, so we're not going to. The issue that they have is that the Corinthians are living their lives as if the Spirit of God had not transformed them. In a way, they are living a spiritless Christianity. And so if you've missed a couple of sermons in the past few weeks, let me get you caught up. Put this in your outline. 
This is Keith's um, kind of summary of where he's taken us so far. It says, Paul's reasoning in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 3 is this. There is a spirit-given revelation that informs, transforms, and shapes our lives. The rulers and debaters of this age didn't have it, or they would have lived differently. You, the Corinthians, have the spirit. Thus, you, the Corinthians, have access to this revelation that informs, transforms, and shapes life. But, you are living like those who don't have access to this revelation, which in turn is producing the fruit of boasting and jealousy and strife and heightened self-interest, which for the believer is described as immature or mere man. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Keith entitled his sermon last week, The Life-Changing Power of, the Ho- of Holy Spirit Revelation. And this week, we're going to look at the counterpart of that. So I've titled this sermon, The Dangers of Being Merely Human. As I see the text, there's three dangers. I'll give them to you right up the front. The three dangers of being merely human are spiritual immaturity, spiritual chaos, and spiritual blindness. Let's look at that first one. Spiritual immaturity. Look back at verse 1 in chapter 3 with me. So Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. In verse 1 alone, there's, there's several sermons But I want to draw your attention to just the last phrase of verse 1. Infants in Christ. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? What is he trying to communicate to these folks as they read those words? You, Corinthians, are an infant in Christ. How would they have received that? When I think of infants and I think of babies, I love babies. I think babies are awesome. I think babies are cute. I think, I think they're, they're, they're amazing. I, I love babies. If you don't think so, something wrong with you. You, you. you should. I think there's the 11th commandment is thou shalt love babies. It just, it's got to be in there in the Bible. And um, I get it. You know, they stink. They throw up all the time. They keep you up at night. Uh, and they'll stain every new piece of uh, uh, furniture that you buy. Um, but, but they're lovable. They're so cuddly. Um, they're so delightful. They, 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 the way they experience new things, their mind opening up to, to their hands, to, to just communication, it's just beautiful. And there's one element I love about babies, um, above all, and infants. Um, their innocence. There's an unstained innocence in children that I just love. Let me give you an example. When, when we take our kids to the park, I, I marvel at how quickly my kids make friends with complete strangers. How quickly that they trust other people. How, how quickly they include complete strangers into, into their joy. They're experiencing joy, they're celebrating something, they're excited about something, and they are quick to bring someone they don't know to participate in that joy. They typically think of other people as their best friends. My my oldest daughter, Adelaide, has never met a stranger. She's everyone's friend. She loves other kids. I, I love that when kids are playing together, they don't see the same things in other people that we do in the same way. 
They recognize the same things we see in other people, but they don't see those differences in the same way. Things like race, ethnicity, social status. A lot of times, those are things that as adults create distance between one another. We recognize something different about another person. The car they drive, maybe it's an expensive car or a beat-up car or the color of their skin or their ethnicity or their age. And that difference, we shy from. We pull back from. Kids are the complete different. Kids, they see that, they run towards it. They're curious, right? They ask questions, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Be, being at line at Walmart or a Target or somewhere with, with a young kid and they'll, they'll find someone with, with maybe some sort of abnormality, maybe in a wheelchair, and they'll, they'll tug your, your, Daddy, why is that person that way? They don't whisper about these things, right? They just blurt things out. They're not being rude, They're being curious. There's this innocence about them. I love that. I think that's beautiful. I think that's to be applauded and encouraged and and, 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 and clapped on. Well, when Paul calls them infants in Christ, you need to understand he's not calling them beautiful or cute or innocent. He's calling them out. The phrase might sound like a, like a polite term of endearment, but it's actually a backhanded insult. Let me read to you this comment by Gordon Fee. He says, the word used here in the original language, nepios, almost always has a pejorative sense and refers to thinking or behavior that is not fitting for a grown-up. That is the concern here. It's not so much that they have not made progress, that's part of the problem, they think they have, but that they are adults acting otherwise when it comes to the life of the Spirit. Most of the times, children act in beautiful ways. Most of the time. You know when their actions are not beautiful? You've been around a bratty, immature kid? That's not pretty. You know what's even uglier? Have you been around a bratty, immature grown-up? That's what Paul is doing here. He's calling them immature. He's calling them bratty. He's saying, you're a bunch of man-children. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, just a chapter before, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. These were people obsessed with, with elevating their minds and pursuing human wisdom and in, intricate, sophisticated, nuanced, philosophical arguments about life and faith and, and all. That's what they pursued. That, that made them feel good about themselves. Paul undercuts that and says, I didn't come to you sounding that way. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. They didn't sound like the stuff that you like to hear. But in demonstration of power and the Spirit. Listen to this. So that your faith, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. But that's not you, guys. You Corinthians are not the mature. You are infants in Christ. You're immature because you're still only infants. 
And why are you still only infants? Because your behavior resembles the behavior of those who do not trust in the power of God, but rest their faith on the wisdom of men. You guys look like you don't have the Spirit of God. There's no genuine power being displayed in how you treat each other, how you walk your faith. Spirit-filled people look a certain way. And newsflash, Corinthians, you don't. Your resemblance is merely human. You don't look like spiritual people. And this is the great irony. The Corinthians had such a high view of themselves, they had coined a phrase for them. In verse 1, it's translated, you are as a spirit, spiritual people. Different translations translate that differently, but they, they, they had created a word. They, they called themselves spirit people. They, they boasted so much about who they thought they were, when they referred to themselves, they referred to themselves as spirit people. Um, so it's kind of like if you ever watch the beginning of a football game where, where the, the uh, players are announcing themselves, you know, the, the defense and offense, and they'll have like a quick clip of, you know, the player's name and then what, what college they're from. Uh, they'll say something like, you know, so-and-so-and-so, the Ohio State. Or certain-so-and-so, the this, this school, you know. That, that boasting, that, that's the translation there. We are the spiritual people. <laughs> They're not. That's the point. Their behavior betrays them. By calling them infants in Christ, Paul is telling them, your faith has not grown. It's not developed. It's not matured. It hasn't produced the work that it should have produced in your lives by now. I could not address you as spirit people, Corinthians. I should have. I wanted to. It was my intention. But I can't. Because you're immature people of the flesh. It's like Benjamin Button. He looked young when he was actually old. You look, quote unquote, spiritual, but you don't act that way. There's a disconnect. There's something wrong. There's a a built-in contradiction in what they believe and what they do with that belief. Now, please hear Paul's concern for them. To some degree, he can't believe it. There's just this indignation in him. Like, he just can't believe it. Major face palm. You guys have the spirit, but aren't living spirit-filled lives? Now, to be clear, Paul is not teaching that the reason they are not growing is because they are not saved. That's not what he's teaching. Keith covered this pretty well last week, so if you have questions on this, listen to his sermon last week. He is also not creating like a third category. I think that the King James Version translates this as carnal Christians, the people of the flesh. He's not creating a third category of, 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 of spiritual people where you have one category is non-Christians who act as non-Christians, Christians who act as Christians, and then... Christians who act as non-Christians. He's he's not creating this third category and somehow giving allowance to the existence of people to be a Christian but not act like one. That's not what's going on here. Paul is admonishing them. He's in their face. He's telling them to change. They are infants in Christ. That's the salvation part. 
But he's calling them infants. It's an indictment, not an allowance. He's calling them back from their unacceptable living to their true identity in Christ. And he is disappointed in them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. He tells them, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. Did you notice the, the verb tense change? I fed you with milk at some point in the past. You were not ready for it then. It's to be expected. If you're an infant, you give a baby milk. You don't give him meat. You don't, you, you don't increase in, in, in what they can, can, can take and, and, and digest and, and, and incorporate into their bodies. And here's the change. Even now, you're not yet ready. You should be ready. Paul had expectations for them. They should have looked a certain way. When Chloe and her group send Paul this letter and say, Paul, we got problems. It was a major disappointment because those problems shouldn't have existed. He had expectations and they didn't meet them. Listen to this thought by D.A. Carson. He says, at some point, the number of years, persons have been Christian, who have been Christian, leads to expect something like mature behavior from them. But they prove otherwise. They are infants still and display their wretched immaturity in the way that they complain if you give them more than milk. Not for them, solid knowledge of scripture. Not for them, mature theological reflection. Not for them, growing and perceptive Christian thought. They want nothing more than a round of choruses and a simple message. Something that won't challenge them to think, to make choices, and to grow in their knowledge and adoration of the living God. So for the Corinthians then, they are wretchedly immature believers. This has massive implications for us as a church and for you as an individual Christian. You should be asking yourself this question right now. Am I mature in Christ? Am I an infant in Christ? Am I merely human? Let me give you more questions to apply some of this. I, 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 each one of these points has application questions. I included those in the outline. I want you to take this home and, and pray through these questions. Let the Lord examine your heart as you are praying through some of these questions. So for example, do you believe yourself to be spiritually mature? What do you base that on? The Corinthians boasted about their spiritual maturity. They believed they were They called themselves spirit people. Do you call yourself a Christian? Their actions betrayed them. Do your actions betray you? If the Apostle Paul were to look at your life this week, would he describe you as a spiritual person or as a person of the flesh? If Paul had access to your activity from Monday to today of this past week, what what would his, his notes look like? He had a column on a piece of paper, spirit person, person of the flesh. What would your life look like? Which category would have more things on that list? Would you agree with him? Would you argue with Paul? Do you agree with him right now? 
Do you realize that you might be blind to your own spiritual immaturity? Do you realize that you might be blind to your own spiritual immaturity? The Corinthians recognized no spiritual immaturity. It took the apostle Paul pointing that out to them. They were boasting about being wise. Do you realize that it took a spiritually mature person to point out the spiritual immaturity in the Corinthians? So who who, who do you surround yourself with as you do life? Do you make room for for, uh, uh, the elders of this church, for the pastors of this church, for leaders in this church? Do you make room for your small group leader? Do you allow them to influence your life and speak into their lives? Or are you convinced that you're a spiritual person? Do you routinely approach spiritually mature people for counsel and guidance? Or is the only time you seek help when you have an emergency? Nothing wrong, by the way. Nothing wrong with with any one of you coming to our church offices, asking for counsel on, on an emergency case. There's nothing wrong. But is that a routine part of your life? Do you involve other mature believers in making decisions for your life, about your life? Do you allow people to examine you? Do you know what a spiritually mature person looks like? If I were to ask anyone in this room to stand and go find a spiritual mature person, who would you pick? Well, I'm going to pick Keith, right? He's a senior pastor. Well, he's not allowed. Well, then I'm going to pick Peter. He's in the, my, he, the pastors and elders aren't allowed. Okay? You, you, you can't pick from them. Who would you turn to? To questions, applications, take those home. Pray for them. Let the Lord minister to you this week. A second danger of being merely human is this. Spiritual chaos. So what does Paul point to as the proof that they are just merely human? What does he use as the evidence for them to be acting as people of the flesh and not people of the spirit? What what specific evidence does Paul give to say, that's the proof right there. You guys are not spiritual, you're fleshly, and here's why. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. Paul says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? In the coming weeks, we're, we're going to learn a lot about the Corinthians. They were, they were truly an incredible group of people. I know I just got finished bashing them, but, but they, they were pretty, pretty awesome Any one of us would have been eager to attend their Sunday morning gathering. You would have had an incredible time. I thought about the Corinthians. I thought, what would a Sunday morning setting in in, uh, um, uh, uh, Corinth uh, Corinth Christian Center look like? Like, I've, I've wondered. Well... The, the music was probably amazing. I've, I've often joked that some of the churches that Paul writes to, I, I, I ascribe a de- denomination to them. So, like, I, I think about the, the Romans. You know, they're the real heady people. So, that's the Presbyterians. Um, 
I think about the, the Galatians, you know, they're about, you know, Bible thumping. That's my old kin, the Baptists. And um, the Corinthians, charismatics right here. So this would have been a church to go to on a Sunday morning worship service. You would have witnessed all kinds of powerful ministries of the Holy Spirit. You would have seen signs, healings, prophetic utterances, uh, revelations, uh, uh, miracles performed right before your eyes. You might have even showed up one Sunday and heard the Apostle Paul preach, or, or the Apostle Peter preach, or this guy Apollos, who's had to be a big shot because Paul commends him. Paul sends Timothy to them at some point. So these guys had awesome teachers, awesome worship, awesome experiences. First Corinthians, they, they built an awesome church to attend. But in the midst of all that goodness, in the midst of all that amazement and wonder, there was a profound disconnect when they left church. When they walked out the doors of their building, they didn't have a building, but carry the metaphor with me. Something happened. How they lived their lives as a church reflected nothing about what they received when they were at church. Or to put it another way, the revelation they had received from God had no bearing on how they lived their lives. If you, if you boil down spiritual life, what makes up spiritual life in a believer? There's, there's two components. The mind and the heart. There might be more, there might be less. I'm going to argue for two right now. These two are dip, deeply connected. You can distinguish them. There's things that come to our mind and there's things that come out of our hearts. There's this connection, intricately woven connection of these two realities of our, of, of our being. What we believe about God is a product of his revelation. That affects our mind. We, we, we see something, we're, we're told something, we're, we're taught something. We, we receive something, comes in through our ears or our eyeballs, and it, it, it starts to change ideas, form ideas, modify ideas. That, that's the mind aspect. But that revelation completes its work when it accomplishes something through our actions. Revelation is received, there's a response that follows. A revelation from God is received, there's a response that follows. Christians cannot remain unresponsive to a revelation from God. You will not find one instance in scripture where God has revealed an aspect about himself to a people and they did this. Okay. And they just walked away. Quite the opposite. When God revealed an aspect about, his, about himself to his people, he did so in multiple ways. One of my favorite ways is he sent angels. And people almost died. How do I know that? Because the angels looked at them and said, do not fear. The power of God's revelation does something to individuals. We respond in a certain way. God's peoples respond to God's revelation through his spirit. How? By doing God's work. Or to use Paul's language, spirit people do the work of the spirit. Spirit people do the work of the Spirit. Listen to this thought by Alexander Strzok. He says, Although the Corinthians prided themselves on their spirituality and knowledge, 
Their quarrels, jealousies, and factiousness proved that they were not walking by the Spirit. Revelation had been given to them and nothing's happening. They possessed abundant gifts of the Spirit but lacked the graces of the Spirit. Their manner of life was inconsistent with that of the people who profess to walk by the Spirit and represent the truth of the gospel. That last sentence is key. There's a walking component. There's a doing component. There's an action component. There's an, it's a heart-producing, doing component of the Christian life. When we've received revelation from God, something should come out on the other end. And it should look a certain way. In their lives, it wasn't looking the way it should have looked. That's their problem. When believers remain in this condition, that Paul says as merely human, there's spiritual chaos. Now why? How is spiritually chaos produced when people receive from God's revelation and, and don't act on it. Well, here's how. Because people do not remain inactive. People do something. And it's typically the wrong thing. Look at Galatians chapter 5. The, the uh, um, scriptures have a bunch to say this. Galatians chapter 5 verses 15 through 25. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Do these spiritual things. And you will not, what? Gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. You have two options. Humanity is bound in these two options. You either walk by the Spirit or you walk against the Spirit. There's no standing still not doing anything. That's not a reality of the Christian life. You walk by the Spirit or you work against the Spirit. And we're about to see what that against the Spirit looks like. And it's really scary. But let's keep reading. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now pause right there. Paul's about to show us what it looks like to not walk in the Spirit. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. This is what walking in the flesh looks like. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. There's more. Paul sounds like an an infomercial for sin. Call now. There's more. Doesn't that sound like chaos to you? I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I find it fascinating that most of the fruit of the Spirit are relational categories expressed maybe only through contact with other people. You can't be patient with just yourself. There has to be another person that's rubbing you a certain way that you have to show patience. 
You need another person to be kind to. You need another person to show faithfulness to, gentleness, peace. You need, there needs to be created an opportunity for conflict to arise, for peace to show up. Verse 24 says, And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passion. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So he's telling the uh, Ephesians the same thing he told the Corinthians. But there's more. And this is where it gets kind of scary. James chapter 3. Verses 13 through 17, the apostle says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This wisdom, by the way, sounds very different than the wisdom the Corinthians were pursuing. The meekness of wisdom versus their boasting in wisdom. Very different source of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from God above, but it is earthly, okay, unspiritual, that's people of the flesh, demonic? What? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder. Chaos and every vile practice. That's Paul saying, there's more. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Again, you need relational categories for those things to be expressed. The Corinthians had the same problem that many Christians have today. Things like strife, bitterness, and jealousy. None of us, none of, of, of us like those things. Like, like we don't pursue those things. They're not pleasant, right? You'd rather not be in a situation where there's strife and jealousy, but, but it's not a big deal. I mean, there are worse things, right, as a human being that could, could, could you expend jealousy? I mean... It's not pleasant, it's not fun to be around jealous and bitter people, but, but you can just tune them out, right? How did James describe jealousy in verse 15? Demonic. When I think of demonic, which I try not to, I don't wake up first thing in the morning, let me think demonic things. Um, but for this sermon, I, that, I, okay, let's think demonic. I think of really scary and dark things. I think of stuff like voodoo, messing around with Ouija boards, visiting seances, witchcraft, uh, blood sacrifices, becoming a part of a satanic cult. But jealousy? How does jealousy lead to demonic activity? That's a question I asked as I read this. Well, a lot of times, what does jealousy turn into? Have you ever met someone who's jealous and they're not angry? Have you ever met an individual who's jealous about something and that jealousy builds and it doesn't turn into anger towards that person? 
I think those two things are, are connected. You see what others have, you crave it, you want it, you need it, and then you determine that you should have it. So question, why did Cain kill his brother Abel? Anger. He was angry. But where did that anger come from? What what soil existed that that anger grew from? Jealousy. Listen to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. Put on then this new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Have you ever considered that anger can be an opportunity to team up with Satan to do demonic damage on a church? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? That in your anger, you could tag team Satan and say, you're up. This is why Paul's so worried about them. Jealousy and strife is causing division. They are, in a sense, doing Satan's job for him. And that division is leading to something profoundly evil. In in later chapters, that division is going to come up. People are suing each other left and right. There's all sorts of animosity. And that type of behavior is destructive to the local church. Being merely human wreaks havoc and produces chaos. Not only did it do that in the church of Corinth, but it does that in our setting as well. So let's apply that second point. What do we do with that information? More questions for you. If you're a member of this church and you have not seen or sensed any real spiritual growth for some time, the problem might not be your prayer life. The problem might not be your Bible reading. You might actually be taking in a number of multiple Christian podcasts. You might be reading Christian books. You you might be going to multiple Bible studies during the week. You you enjoy worship on Sunday mornings. but, But you have this sense that there's no growth. That you're still an infant. Nothing's really happening. Is there jealousy in your heart? And if so, how can you tell? If you said no, how can you tell? Well, let me give you some ways. When other believers are blessed by the Lord, are you immediately happy? Do you default to celebration when a believer is blessed? Or are you resentful? Do you ask the question, why them? Do you help draw attention to ministries in the church other than your own? Do you ever ask the question, for example, why does a certain ministry get to do things that we don't get to do? These thoughts come to your mind. They might reveal that there's jealousy in your heart. Another question, do you pray for wisdom for ministry leaders? They will. 
I guarantee you, we will. I guarantee you, I will. I can surely guarantee you that. Make poor decisions. Are you quick to understand and help find a solution? Or are you quick to point to those bad decisions and criticize them? And do you do that in public? Do you regularly ask God to give favor to people in the church or ministries in the church that you are not and may never be a part of? Is that part of your prayer life? Do you ask God to give favor to ministries you don't like? And maybe you believe they shouldn't even exist. So maybe in this room, you despise the idea of Alpha. You can't stand it. Why would we do that? Have you prayed for Alpha to succeed? Have you prayed for for Frank to be anointed every time he speaks? That's just one example. It could be a whole bunch. We just finished our small group season, right? Or semester, or whatever we call it. Maybe your small group leader was... Well... Maybe he needed a little help. (laughs) Did you criticize him to others? Or have you asked God to increase his gifting? Youth, young people. Do you pray for the senior adults in the church? Are you excited about the fact that there is no other group of people in this church that does more than the senior adults? Are you aware they exist, youth? (laughs) Married folks with kids. Do you pray for singles at LCC? Or, do they ever only come to mind when there's no childcare for an event? And you're angry because you can't go enjoy something at Lakeview because the stinking singles won't help. This is serious stuff, guys. This is the type of thing that brings chaos to a church. I tried to make these questions as real as I could for my heart and for yours. This is what the Corinthians were living through. These are the types of fights and discussions they were experiencing. This is the comparisons that they had. Finally, the last danger of being merely human is spiritual blindness. Look at verses 5 through 9. So Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, for, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. As you read those verses, did you notice that God is referenced in every verse? Verse 5, the Lord assigns. Verse 6, God gives ver- uh, growth. Verse 7, God gives growth. Verse 8, God is implied he is the one who's going to give the wages that they'll receive. And verse 9, God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building. Why was Paul so repetitive? 
Why did he have to write God, 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 God? Because they were blind to it. They couldn't see it. In their mere humanity, they are blind to God's work in their midst. Every aspect of their spiritual life, from their birth to the gifts they had, had been granted and generated by God. So it makes absolutely no sense for them to show favoritism to Paul or Apollos for doing something when it was God who was working through them. It makes no sense for them to boast in a particular aspect of their development as believers as a result of a person's influence in their lives when it was God who did that development. It was God who created that development. It was God who gifted that person to produce that development in their lives. It made no sense. God is responsible for all the good in the church of Corinth. It's not a Lakeview analogy, a certain, it's not a Lakeview sermon without a football analogy. So my second one. And I um, wanted to draw this point out a little more. So the Saints are looking mighty good. We might have a shot at the Super Bowl this year. And can you imagine winning the Super Bowl again? Saints win the Super Bowl. Right? You imagine, I don't know, going to a restaurant or somewhere the next day, that week, or maybe that evening, I don't know, and then just celebrating, and then, and then coming up to two Saints fans arguing. And one of them is making this argument. Well, well we only won because our offense is the best. And then you got this guy over here saying, yeah, well... Our offense has always been good, but our defense has never been good, but now they were good, so that's why we won. And then this guy goes, no, man, you're wrong. You're wrong, man. The, the offense, we scored the points. The guy on the defense goes, no, but we, we stopped them from scoring points. How stupid is that? <laughs> why is that stupid? Now, why is that dangerous? Why is it dangerous for people to think that way? Because it distracts them from what's taken place. Celebrating the victory has now been eclipsed by the desire to win an argument over how that victory was won. In other words, what the team has done is no longer important. I mean, that's what they're saying. Who cares that the saints won? Let me boast about my idea of how they won. That is what the Corinthians are doing. The glory of God in calling a people to himself and redeeming them by the shedding of the spotless blood of the sinless Messiah, that glory is eclipsed. It doesn't matter anymore. It's eclipsed by a self-centered desire to boast about what brings them glory. Yeah, 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 I get it. I mean, Jesus died on the cross. Yeah, I guess that's important. But I follow Apollos. He teaches the way I like. Makes me feel good because 
he just tucks it in. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I get the, the Lamb of God saved us from the eternal fires of hell. I get that. But I follow Paul. I don't like your Apollos, dude. He yells too much. You see how foolish? You see how dangerous? In fighting over their own perceived preeminence, they have obscured the glory of the preeminent one. It's as if we're back in the book of Exodus. It's as if people have made idols for themselves. But this time, the idols weren't golden calves. The idols were made of flesh and bone. Eric, you can come up, dude. So let me make some final observations and some more questions. What do we do with all that? Well, first is, this is not an isolated problem. This wasn't someone else's problem either. What I mean by that is this. Not everyone is to blame for what's happening at Corinth. Not everyone is at fault. Chloe is reporting this. There's a group of people who know right from wrong and they're asking for help. But Paul expected everyone to do something about it. Verse 1 includes everyone. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you, all of you, as spiritual people. Verse 9 includes everyone as well. You, all of you, are God's field. You, all of you, are God's building. In southern tongue, all y'all. 1 Corinthians was not written to a group of people. 1 Corinthians was written to the people in Corinth. I find that interesting. It's not an isolated problem. It's everyone's problem. Second observation, much of what happened at Corinth happened in the midst of heightened spiritual activity. Some might even look at the church of Corinth and say they were a spirit-filled church. They did a bunch of cool stuff. I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying that. But some would look at that and say, okay, they're a spirit-filled church. But in addition to the Spirit's presence in their midst, evil lurked in the shadows. And, And that evil took the form of pride, boasting, constant posturing, strife. And what was the effect of that evil? Destruction. Let me ask you this. How long do you think this church would have lasted before it split apart? If Chloe had never sent this letter, how long do you think it would have, they would have lasted? Weeks, months, years before the church disintegrated into nothing. I don't know how long they would have lasted. But I've seen this happen with my own eyes. I've seen 1 Corinthians in the flesh. I've seen it. A church experiencing growth, salvations, baptism, solid teaching, great worship, and lose it all to strife over stupid things. And you know what the sad thing is? The sad thing is that the reasons for that strife, they really were petty. I can tell you stories of friends of mine who are pastors who have been fired from their churches or who have seen their churches die as, as a result of arguments related to the color of carpet in the sanctuary, to the type of chairs that are used to, to put in fellowship halls, to, to the color of the paint that's chosen to paint the 50-year-old paint that's been in the wall that's fallen apart. 
I've been in those meetings. I've heard and seen the yelling and insulting and bickering and strife. Second thought is, or a third thought I should say, a particular reason for Corinthian strife was how they viewed their leadership. Evan will more than likely cover some of this next week. I hope he does. But look at verse 4 again. Paul says, For when one says, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Paul, are you not merely human? You know, Apollos is never corrected in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you read the, first, the book of 1 Corinthians, you might get the impression that Apollos is a bad guy. He's not. Paul exalts him. Let me show you how foolish this would be. Let's swap out some names. I follow Keith. I follow Peter. I follow Frank. I follow Bill. I follow... How foolish and dangerous is that for the integrity of our church? You see what it did to their church? What could it do to ours? Now, that segues into one of these final thoughts I have. What happened in Corinth can happen here. What happened in Corinth can happen here. Why else would we have the letter of 1 Corinthians? Not only that, we have their same DNA. We're humans. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I want to be clear. I'm not trying to get you to read between the lines and, and, and kind of veil, give you some insider baseball that there's something. No, no. There, I, don't, I genuinely believe there is no present corporate disunity of any kind. I don't think that's happening right now. Thank God. Praise God. But there could be. Why? Because I'm here. And because you're here. Because like the Corinthians, we have this capacity. We have the capacity in our best days to be merely human. That's what we've proven ourselves to be able to do. We need God's guidance at all times. And finally, do you see what the ultimate danger of being merely human is? This is what I thought I was going to preach on, by the way, this last thought. Amazing how this happens. Um, When a church exists in disunity... It communicates that the word of the cross doesn't matter. A church in disunity communicates that the word of the cross is powerless. Why? Because if the word of the cross made any actual difference, things would be different. We would be quick to forgive as we've been forgiven. We would be quick to show grace as grace has been lavished upon us. We would be quick to be merciful with others as we've been extended mercy by God. 
If the holy God of the universe puts up with us, why can't we put up with each other? And we communicate that the word of the cross is not really powerful. We lie about who God is. And we lie about the effect of the cross in our midst when we live in strife and jealousy. And we, we're capable of that. So, final application questions. Let me ask you to stand with us. Let me encourage you to take those notes home. Not because I worked on them real hard. (laughs) Ask these questions. Go to your closet. Get before God and ask these questions. Questions like, do I view some pastors and elders at Lakeview as being better or more than others? Ask yourself this question, do I pursue church unity? Do I pursue church unity? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love. Or do I see church unity as somebody else's job? Someone will take care of that. Do you view church disunity and strife and jealousy as someone else's problem? I mean, it's their problem. They're struggling with that. That make a difference to me. Does it matter to you to know that there are people at Lakeview not getting along? Does that matter to you? Does it mean anything to you to know that there are brothers and sisters in Christ at their wit's end towards each other? Are you affected by that? Have you developed your own sense of boasting? Wow, this can't happen here at Lakeview. I mean, after all, I'm here. Are you making the word of the cross the most important aspect of life at LCC? Do you value the cross and its message over the preferential things? I'm not saying those things don't matter. Please don't hear that. But there is one thing that matters most. Let's go to Lord in prayer. And as you bow, James would tell us in chapter 4 of his letter to confess our sins to one another. Pastor Ronald not saying that, the Apostle James did. If the Lord has brought about an awareness in your heart, When I said the word jealousy, if a person was attached, 
Would you ask the Lord to give you supernatural strength to go to that person right now and forgive them or apologize to them? Is that going to be embarrassing? Yeah. Is that going to be hard? You bet. Is it going to be weird? Maybe. But if you don't do it, you're the spiritual equivalent of a double agent. You're doing Satan's bidding, not God's. Don't let that stuff in your heart remain. a singing moment it is a serious moment it's a moment to respond and quite honestly that is a massive problem with the Corinthians they're not responders so I'm going to fast forward because I'm going to pull another argument from Paul you're going to hear this in a few weeks situation going unaddressed amongst the Corinthians in chapter 5 he says Paul says this way it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and and you are arrogant ought you not rather to mourn all right so this is a different situation not enumerated or talked about by Ronald this morning. But the point is the same. These guys managed to do church and tolerate all kinds of things among themselves that even lost people wouldn't have tolerated. They'd have done something different. And yet these guys managed to be arrogant in the way they did their life together as a church while letting these things travel right along with them. And Paul says, you've got no grounds for your arrogance because you tolerate these things in your life. Things this morning that God exposed perhaps in some of our hearts, jealousy, strife, that sense of being okay with being separated from others. And I thank God, Ronald mentioned this, and he and I talked this week a little bit, about this. I thank God that Lakeview Christian Center doesn't feel like a divisive church, nor are we aware of any divisions that are arising among us. And so I, I don't know that the greatest issues for your application in this is somebody across the aisle somewhere. But that doesn't mean, that, as when Ronald said, there was jealousy mentioned and somebody came to mind. And you are struggling with the way in which you strive and have divisive attitudes towards other people that are in your life. This passage calls for hostility toward that. It calls for a lack of toleration in your own heart. You can't 
be a Christian and continue just to carry with you this jealousy and comparison and striving and jealousy and comparison and striving and just keep carrying it with you. And we'll just go on to the next passage. Or maybe Eric will sing a song right now. We can just go on, right? And we'll just carry that with us. All right, here's how I believe God wants us to respond. If, if when jealousy was mentioned and strife was mentioned, there are realities in your own heart, I believe God wants you to become hostile toward that. Hostile. No longer at peace. Not leaving here today. Going to sing a song, listen to a message. But I'm going to be just as jealous and striving as I was when I came in. Because that kind of sin doesn't get to me. No, no, no. This Bible calls on us to be hostile toward that. You're going to need to take up arms right now about that. And if you're not sure how to do that, you need to make an appointment. You need to come get some counsel. You need some help. You need to go find a mature believer. You need to sit with your covenant group leader. Say, man, I I struggle in this area. Let me be careful in that. If If you struggle with jealousy and divisiveness in your own heart, it may have nothing to do with anybody else having done anything wrong but just be different than you and be living in God's assignment for them. So you don't need to go to that person for that. If your heart is sinful against comparison, you need to deal with that in your own heart. They're not doing anything wrong. So you going to them with that, unless you've sinned against them by gossiping about them or ignoring them or hurting them somehow. But if in your own heart it's your own problem, that's not an issue I'd send you to that person with. But you do need to wrestle it to the ground and kick it in the head and it needs to go away. If it doesn't, are we not acting like mere men? So here's a response, I believe, which I didn't think was a singing response this morning. I think the response needs to be, are are you going to tolerate this for another day? Or are you going to rise up in hostility by the Spirit against that in your own soul? Let's pray. Father, these are, these are the little, little sins that steal joy from our lives. Joy which you paid quite a price to give to us. Hope that you paid quite a price to give to us. A life that you paid quite a price to give to us. And are we living like mere men? people who don't have what you purchased for us. Lord, may that not exist for another day. Lord, across this room where there is jealousy and strife and a divisive permission in our own souls, we're okay with holding people in a low opinion in our hearts, thinking poorly of them, separating ourselves from them, competing in our hearts with them. Lord, if we're okay with that, Lord, you're not okay with that. That does lead to anger and gossip and slander and separation and divisiveness. Lord, that, that's the 
seedbed of where that takes us. So, Lord, this morning, would you make us hostile to where jealousy, you are not my friend and you are not welcome in my life. Strife and separation. You are not welcome in my life. Lord, I pray for the grace that is aggressive. Lord, grace is a nice sounding word, but I think you want us to be aggressive this morning. I think you want to give us grace that picks a fight against these things in our souls. That they would not be given permission to stay another day. But Lord, from this moment on, Lord, you would haunt us this week by the Spirit with an awareness to attack that at every moment that it rises up in my heart. Lord, if I see it at 3 o'clock this afternoon, Lord, would something by the Spirit rise up in me and go hostile on that thing? Come against it. Speak against it. Grab truth that undoes that. Lord, may that be true Monday morning and Tuesday night. Lord, throughout this week, Lord, would you make us a church that doesn't tolerate that in our own souls? It is robbing us of what you have given us. And Lord, where it is appropriate, where there has been damage done, where our jealousy has damaged another person, we have withheld ourselves or harmed them. Lord, would you send us to that person in humility? Whether it's a family member, we have withheld ourselves from a family member, we have striven against a family member, we have refused to engage a family member. Lord, would, would you send us to them in humility? Lord, if it exists in the church, if it exists in our workplace, Lord, the, the, Lord, don't let us tolerate this another day. Lord, make us not like the Corinthians in that regard, that we won't tolerate being mere humans when you have given us so much more than that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Ronald, thank you. Excellent, excellent word, my friend.